I'm John, and tonight I want answers about Bitcoin. There's no stopping us now, because we're live. I'm John Thompson. I'm John A. Vink. I'm Keith Statenfield. I'm Loretta Beavers. I'm A.J. Minnick. I'm Jennifer Sim. I'm Bobby Chastain. These stories tonight on John Wants Answers. John Wants Answers. John wants answers. Give John answers. Check your calendar. If it says December 8th, I think it's 8th today, 2022, there it is, then we're live. My guest tonight is John Kalb. He's going to talk to us about Bitcoin tonight. And if you want to ask us questions, well, you can go to a new website called Claims. Go to javrolcom slash claims, and then you can send us a claim at John Wants Answers. We have an S this time on the end. Before we didn't have the last S. They chop us off at Twitter. But now with claims, you can have the last S. So send us a message and we'll look it up halfway through the show and we'll read your claim and we'll see if our guest has any answers. Sounds good. All right. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. So I know you mostly as a C++ standards committee guy like you design the new c++ pluses but you're you're not here tonight for that you're here tonight about bitcoin that's right now are you a bitcoin professional or a bitcoin enthusiast i would say i'm a bitcoin enthusiast I, okay yeah, i'm not a bitcoin professional um the bitcoin uh core protocol is written in c++ by the way oh there but you go. i literally have i glanced at it once i have mm -hmm. not looked at it so i have no special insight about how it's programmed except i know that it's in c++ um but it's a protocol so you could completely write a bitcoin compliant software in a completely different language mm -hmm. because it's just a network protocol and so it doesn't matter what the code is uh -huh. it's just what it does right it matters so for full transparency um you have to tell me how much, but are you a Bitcoin investor? <laughs> um, I do own some Bitcoin, yes. Okay. So you might be motivated to jack up the price here. Um, yes, that's, that's why I'm here is because I know that with your thousands and thousands of, of users. My influence. Your yeah. influence and uh, the amount of money that, that people are looking uh, to invest, that it's likely to affect the price of, of Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, in fact, I can track Bitcoin on my watch, so I'll know if it goes up. No, and I can't really. No, you can't? <laughs> Are Bitcoin markets 24 hours? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. There's Absolutely. no, like, lame 9 to 5, like for the stock market. It doesn't even stop for holidays. Oh, wow. That's cool. All right. Our first topic, Bitcoin. Okay, imagine they're playing the music. Okay. Then you drop it. Um, so tell me, what is the Bitcoin origin story? Okay, great. So uh, Bitcoin was created by uh, someone using the uh, pseudonym uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. How do we know it's a pseudonym? Um, well, because we don't know who that person is. So we, so we haven't been able to find him? We haven't been able to find that person, right? Okay. So it's not necessarily one person. could be a group. could be a man. could be a woman. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have my theories, but I have no special insight in that. So I'll just say they or satoshi mm -hmm. um but uh, satoshi whomever that was um uh was a cypherpunk and it's a, it's a cypherpunk so the cypherpunk was a 
an online forum of people who were interested in using cryptography to solve real-world problems. And mm -hmm. so it was called the Cypherpunks. And um, I'm going to talk about four different problems that they solved. Okay. So the first one is the ability to send messages that you want to keep private. Okay. So the way they did this was to use uh, public-private key encryption. And the idea is that you use the software to generate a pair of keys that work together. One of them is the public key. And so you would actually publish that and say, here's my public key. Mm -hmm. And then you have one that is the private key that you never share. Right. So what I do is I write a message to you. And I use the software with the public key, your public key, mm -hmm. and I encrypt it. Now, once it's encrypted, the only way to decrypt it is to use the private key. The public key can't decrypt it. It can only mm -hmm. encrypt it. And even though I'm the one who, who encrypted it, I can't encrypt it. Of course, I have the original message, mm -hmm. but I can't decrypt it. The only way it can be decrypted is with your private key. Which if I keep you, secret. Right. And as long as you keep that secret, then if someone intercepts this message, because email, you know, is not really secure. Right. And in fact, even if somebody took, the, took that message and published it in a public forum or put it on Twitter or Reddit or the New York Times, mm -hmm. you know, uh, page, it wouldn't matter because no one can read that without your private key. Okay. All right. So I send you this message and you can read the message. The, uh, the problem is you're not really certain it's from me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it may come from my email, but that could be forged because yep. email is yep. not perfectly secure. For sure. So the second problem that they solved was the signing problem. And the idea was that I can write a message, and then again I use this cryptography, and this time I use my private key to sign the message. And what that does is it creates a digital signature, which is just this really long string of digits, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you can use my public key to verify that I actually did write that message. Okay. Right? And that it hasn't been modified because, of course, it's just a message. Someone could intercept it and change, you know, I like dogs into I hate dogs or whatever, <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, misrepresent me. So you can use my public key with the digital signature I created to verify that it came from me and that the message is untampered. Now, what if you publish your public key? Uh -huh. How do I know that the person publishing a public key is really you? Well, <laughs> so this is, um, it used to be that people would get together and have what they called uh, key signing parties. And the idea was that if you and I met person to person, then you could be absolutely verified that what I'm telling you is my public key is, in fact, my public key. Right, right. Okay. Uh, so that's how people did that. But the point is, as long as you publish your public key, then, uh, and, you know, as long as we have a pair of public and private keys, we can have a conversation going back and forth mm -hmm. that, even if people intercept, cannot, uh, they can't block it, they can't uh, read it, and they can't modify it. Now, um, they can see by monitoring our email that we are talking, mm -hmm. but again, we could do this in complete public. I mean, you could, you could go on a Reddit and just do a post somewhere, and I could read it, and, mm -hmm. and no one would know who you intended it for. It would just be this, this message that no one can decrypt except me, assuming mm -hmm. you used my public key. Right. right? So the third problem, that was also a very interesting problem, and I wish the solution had caught on. Unfortunately, it didn't catch on. The solution worked, but it didn't catch on. And that is to solve the spam problem. So the idea was that we want to have a system where it is expensive to send a message to lots of recipients. 
So the idea is I should be able to write a message and I can send it to you and maybe to Keith or a few other people. And when I send it, maybe my computer does a slight hesitation. I hardly even notice it. But if I wanted to send that same message to a million different people, mm -hmm. then it might take my computer a week or two of churning through this. Or maybe I'd buy a more expensive computer or whatever. But the point is that sending mail is no longer computationally cheap. It costs a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you're sending to a few recipients, it doesn't cost enough that you worry about it. You don't even think about it. You know, my computer's mostly just sitting there all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. But if I want to send to a spam list, a million people or several million people, it becomes prohibitively expensive. And so uh, this fellow named Adam Back invented something called proof of work. Okay. And so the idea was that for every recipient, the computer had to do some kinds of computation. And again, with a small number of recipients, it doesn't really matter. But if you're trying to send a message to lots and lots of people, then it becomes expensive. Well, this then implies that all bulk mail is spam. Like if I had a newsletter, yeah, and I want to send it to my twenty thousand, you know, readers, sure, it'd be very expensive right. computation to do that. So I, I couldn't do that. No, you could, but you'd have to figure that into the cost of subscribing to the newsletter. Okay. It's essentially postage, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is why, yeah, you get spam at home in your mailbox, but you don't get that much. You don't get nearly as much at home in your mailbox as you do in your electronic mailbox. Mm -hmm. Because if I want to send you junk mail, I just go to the post office and I get the junk mail rate, yep. but I still have to pay for it. Right. It's not free. I have to print the message and I have to pay the post office to deliver it. But electronically, it's still not quite free, but it's so cheap. It's, that's why spam goes out and that's why nobody cares. If, if, they, if an email address uh, is incorrect or wrong, it's not even worth removing mm -hmm. because it doesn't cost anything to just right. send it, right? And that's what's clogging up our email system. So if this had been adopted, then what would have happened is that ev sending an email would not be free, and so people would be more careful about who they send to. And as you said, yeah, it is true. Someone wanting to send to a lot of people, they're going to have to pay for that. But if I really want the message, then I'll pay. Mm -hmm. Because again, for any one person, it's, it's close to free. It's only in the aggregate that it makes a difference. Okay. So here's how this, uh, this proof of work worked. And again, it uses, uses some cryptography um, technology. And it used something um, uh, called hashing. So as a programmer, I'm sure you're familiar with hashing, yeah. but you know, so that people know, um, a hash function it takes any, any data you have and converts it into a single number. Now, a cryptographically good hash is one where you have no idea what the original data was by looking at the number. And also, a small change in the data causes a different and very unpredictable result in the number. That's a good cryptographic hash. And one of the best is one called um, Secure Hashing Algorithm 256. This was developed by the NSA, and the name comes from the fact that the number is always 256 bits. So any data you put in, you can hash it using this hashing algorithm, and you get a 256 number coming out, mm. right? And so um, imagine that I create a, an email system where I won't forward on a message unless there is uh, a subject, a message, a recipient, a time and the hash of all those things. Okay. That way, uh, there has to be a separate hash for each recipient. If I want to send the same message again because of the timestamp, again, I'm going to have to recreate the hash. 
Now, that's not going to stop spamming because it's still pretty inexpensive to run the hash. It's not completely free, there's a little bit, but it's an insignificant charge to run the hash. But we're going to make two changes. The first is we're going to add a value that gets part of the hash. So in addition to the recipient's name, blah, 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 there's a number that's in there. And the number is actually called a nonce. And, the number, and that means number used once. In other words, the only time this is used is in calculating the hash. It doesn't represent anything else. It can be any value at all. It's only used in calculating the hash. So that's one change. The next change we're going to do is we're going to say that we don't send the message on unless the hash happens to start with a zero. Remember, there's 256 bits. Mm -hmm. Bits are either one or a zero. So if the hash starts with a zero, we send the message on. If it doesn't, then it won't go forward. Now. What if I write a message with the recipient and everything, when I hash it, I get, it starts with a one. Does that mean I can't send it? Mm -hmm. No, what it means is I have to change the nonce, right? I just add one okay. to the nonce and mm -hmm. then rehash. Now, half the time it'll be a zero now, but half the time it'll be a one, so what do I have to do? Well, change the nonce again mm -hmm. and redo it. And so on average, basically, I have gone from having to create one hash to having to create two hashes on average in order to be able to send this. And of course, this is still too inexpensive to prevent spamming. Mm -hmm. But now that we have put this in place, we can change the rule that says, well, instead of starting with one zero, it has to start with two zeros. Okay. We've doubled the number of hashes required, right. right? Well, that's still pretty cheap, but I can keep adding zeros and it's exponentially doubling, right? It's, right. it's more and more expensive. And so it's just a question of deciding how expensive do you want it to be to do it, and that's what proof of work is. Okay. Right? So it took you a lot of work to make all the zeros. Right. But then to verify those are zeros takes you can no do work. It, you can do one, well, it's, yeah. it's cheap, right? Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, that's how we do puzzles. Suppose you were, suppose I gave you a jigsaw puzzle. Uh -huh. If it's a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, take you three or four hours, right? Mm -hmm. But I can look at it, and just a glance I can tell whether you did it properly, right? right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, any puzzle is that way. Um, now, maybe with a crossword puzzle, I have to look at each clue and answer to see if it was done right. But essentially, that's the whole point of puzzles, is that they're cheap to verify, but expensive to do. That's the joy of doing it. Okay. But now what we've done is made that computationally so that you have to pay for computer time in order to accomplish something. Now, most of the time, we wouldn't want that. But in the case of spam, that actually turned out to be, um, be useful. Mm -hmm. right? Okay. So, the fourth problem that the cypherpunks solved mm -hmm. was the spend problem. The cypherpunks had been discussing for a long time, is there a way that I could send you money just like an email, right? Or just like a private protected message. So nobody knows how much I sent you and maybe nobody knows who, you know, from one person to another um, and they can't stop it and they can't censor it. Maybe you're a, um, a political figure that you know, maybe you're a Canadian trucker, right? <laughs> people are trying to block people sending uh -huh. you money. That's what we want to be able to do, is to be able to send actual value. Now, it's not just like a check. It's not a promise to pay. It actually has to be able to actually send the value. And that's a tough problem. And there were actually a few working systems that had tried to solve this problem. But all of them had one of two problems associated with it. And it turns out the problems are the solution to each other. So that's why they would only have one of the two problems. So the first problem is this. Suppose I have, in my account, I have 100 monies, whatever that is, 
and I'm going to send you 100 monies because I owe you 100 monies. But at exactly the same instant, I decide to send 100 monies to Keith, right? Okay. Well, now we have a problem because um, which I only have 100 monies in my account. So one of these transactions shouldn't go through. Keith's shouldn't go through. Keith's shouldn't go through. Well, that Mine solved the problem. Through. Yeah. Mine <laughs> but you see, go through. But you see the problem. Yeah. I mean, this, this, if, if we let this system work, then, of course, it wouldn't work because value really comes from scarcity. And if you think about it, in the computer world, we have the flip side of the real world. In the real world, I can't just make an instant perfect duplication of something. I can't do that. I mean, I make things like I print something, I print it again, it's, it's pretty close to the same thing. Yeah. But, it, but it's, not, it's not quite the same thing as just duplicating something, right? But in the computer world, we have the exact opposite problem. Basically, anything you have, just make a copy of it. Right? Mm -hmm. So the problem is to somehow make digital scarcity. Right, so that's that's part of the problem. But there is another solution to the double spend problem, and it's really an obvious one. And the obvious one is to have some central clearinghouse. Mm -hmm. So right, so uh, maybe instead of sending directly to you, I send to the central clearinghouse, and I say, I'm transferring my hundred monies to John. And by the way, at the same time, I'm going to send a message that says I'm sending a hundred monies to Keith. Well, the clearinghouse knows all our accounts and we'll transfer whichever one hits first. Mm -hmm. Maybe yours hits first and you get it. Maybe Keith's hits first and Keith gets it. Sorry. <laughs> but the point is, this solves the double spend problem, right? Mm -hmm. I can't just spend infinitely. Right. But this introduces a new problem. And the new problem is, how do you trust the clearinghouse? Right? Exactly. Because even if the clearinghouse is initially a bunch of good guys, or it could be Wells Fargo. Could be. <laughs> uh, but the problem is, uh, they could be corrupted internally, or mm -hmm. there could be external pressures. A government that was corrupt could, uh, could, could pressure on them. And so you've created this single point of failure. Mm -hmm. um, this is sometimes referred to by people who think about these things philosophically as what they call the, the Byzantine generals problem. And the idea is that the city of Byzantium was so large and well protected that the only way you could conquer it would be to have multiple armies surrounding it and attacking all at the exact same time. Because if you attack from one direction at a time, the city could fend off that attack and be ready to um, somewhere else. So the generals have to coordinate their attack, so they all attack at the same time. The problem is that Byzantium sends out all these spies so that any message that you send from one general to another could be completely intercepted or maybe modified in, 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 in the transmission. And so essentially what we're saying is, how can you make a system that's reliable in the face of a situation where any particular actor may not be reliable? Hmm. And that's actually what Bitcoin did. So Satoshi Nakamoto solved the double spend problem and the single point of failure problem, and essentially the Byzantine general problem with Bitcoin. And the way he did it is he took a bunch of technologies that were already in existence and put them together in a unique way. So it uses public-private key encryption. Mm -hmm. It uses uh, SHA-256 hashing. It uses proof of work, all to create and maintain a blockchain of transactions. And the blockchain itself is using a technique that was called Merkle trees. And the idea is that a Merkle tree is made up of a bunch of uh, essentially 
uh, blocks that each one can be hashed, but it includes the hash of all the previous blocks, so it's cheap to verify all the hashes for the blocks. And so that's what he did. And that created a system then that can allow people to send money or value to each other in a way that is not censorable. It, nothing can block it, nothing can censor it. And now um, I have to know, if I'm sending to you and I know it's you, then I have to know your public key. But essentially every account is just a public key. You don't know anything about the public key except that this is an account I sent it to. So a blockchain is just a bunch of public keys and balances, right? And if you happen to have the private key to a particular public key, then you can say, oh, I want to send this Bitcoin to somewhere else. And that's how these messages um, that, that have value now can mm -hmm. be sent around. <clears throat> so Bitcoin's for sending and receiving, not for investing. Well, okay. So this, uh, uh, the, if you read the Bitcoin white paper, he's mm -hmm. emphasizing the sending and receiving because technically that's the challenging part. And if you happen to live in a, a world with an oppressive, or a country with an oppressive dictator, mm -hmm. then being able to send and receive, get money out of the country, those kinds of things. Um, if you live in a situation where you're unbanked and don't have access to being able to transfer money, those kinds of things, that's really important. And so that's what, um, that's what he was trying to solve. That's the hard part. But he also was aware that being able to send value back and forth isn't really very useful if the value is losing its value, right? So um, he thought about this. In fact, in the very first block of the blockchain that we know Satoshi was the first miner, so um, he, he put a message in there, and the message was a headline from London Times saying um, the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer was going to bail out the banks a second time, or something like that. The point is, he understood, he was making the point, that the ability to debase the money and the ability to just create new money out of thin air was a problem. So what he did was, and this is part of why the proof of work is there, is that there's this process of mining, and the mining is verifying each block in this blockchain. When you mine a block, you get a little bit of a reward, and that's mm -hmm. how Bitcoin comes into a being. But the mining requires proof of work. There's no one in the system, including Satoshi himself, who ever was able to or ever will be able to just create Bitcoin out of thin air. Mm -hmm. It will always require proof of work to create the Bitcoin, or I could buy some from you or sell some to you. I mean, we could do money on the side. Right. That's not part of the Bitcoin chain. But new, newly created Bitcoin are always developed with proof of work. There was no pre-mine, which a lot of other tokens that have copied Bitcoin have a pre-mine where a whole bunch of Bitcoin or a whole bunch of their token is created, given to the creator originally. Satoshi didn't do so that. So Satoshi has a bunch of Bitcoin. Right, but only because of how much he mined. Oh, so he mined all that. He was the first miner, right? And in the early days, nobody, I mean, whoever heard of Bitcoin, right? So he was the only miner for a while. So was mining easier in the early days? Of course, Okay. because the proof of work um, is is based on how many uh, competing miners there are. So the way it's designed is that a new block should appear every 10 minutes. If computers get faster and they're able to calculate the hashes much faster, then it won't take 10 minutes. 
Well, every two weeks, I think, something approximately like that, the Bitcoin protocol makes an adjustment about how many preceding zeros you need to have. Remember that we talked about that's how you adjust the difficulty. So if the blocks are coming out faster than one every 10 minutes on average, then we make the, the mining more difficult. If, it come, if it's taking longer than 10 minutes, we make the mining easier, right? Is so there a central clearinghouse that decides how many zeros you need? Well, that's, it's in the protocol itself. Okay. As I said, what happens is every two weeks, the protocol, uh, the, the, you know, it's the software, but it has to follow the protocol. So even as I said, it doesn't matter what you wrote the protocol in, you have to, what software you create, it has to do this. And that's what's going to happen is that we, because we know how many, how long it's been, you know, let me put it this way: in a ten-week, in a two-week period of time, we could calculate how many ten-minute blocks there should be. And okay. so what it does is it says, okay, going back to that many blocks ago, was that a full two weeks ago? Was it less than two weeks? Was it more than two weeks? If it was approximately two weeks, we leave it the same. If it's less than two weeks, that means the miners are mining faster than every ten minutes, so we need to slow them down, so we make it more difficult. And of course, making it more difficult is what's mostly happened because more and more computing problem power gets put on the on the system. But in the early days, there weren't a lot of computers because Bitcoin didn't didn't yeah. have much value. Right. So there's not a lot of miners, and um, there was no today. Almost all miners are using dedicated hardware specifically designed to mine Bitcoin. But in the early days, people just used regular computer, and mm -hmm. that's what it would have been at first. So. Um, so Satoshi's original blocks would have been fairly inexpensive for him to mine. And um, the way that uh, the mining reward works, the mining reward reduces over time. So he was getting more, uh, more of a reward for each block than mm -hmm. is now. So um, Satoshi, whomever that is, mm -hmm. um, is, is worth um, you know, something like a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin or something like that, which is why I happen to believe Satoshi's probably dead because the temptation of spending that is so great and none of it has ever been spent. Satoshi's never spent any of his Bitcoin oh. as far as we know. Okay. And we do, but we do know. Well, the block coin, it tells us that we do know he's ever spent a coin. So we know that those early blocks have never moved, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, so, so that's why we say, I mean, but, but in the early days, other people would start mining. We don't know exactly every single block that was his versus what somebody else's. We have a pretty good idea. Mm -hmm. And people do watch that. If a, if a block that is believed to be uh, owned or a Bitcoin that's believed to be owned by one of Satoshi's accounts ever moved, that would be big news in the Bitcoin community mm -hmm. because it would mean that potentially a, a billion dollars of Bitcoin could come up for sale. Okay. But uh, as I said, I'm fairly certain that he's dead and took his private keys with him simply because that's never happened. And the temptation of being able to spend... Someone's got to find his keys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, we're running out of time. We only have like four minutes left. Um, why is Bitcoin different than other cryptocurrencies? Well, there's a number of different ways to look at this and think about it. Um, one of them is something I mentioned, but there's no pre-mine. Mm -hmm. um, the origin story of Bitcoin is unique. There is no other situation where someone created it without any pre-mine and then just walked away and let it go. Mm -hmm. Every other token is run by some individual or organization that pre-mined mm -hmm. and is looking to be able to cash in at some point. Okay. 
And so that's one way of thinking about it. But there's a number of different ways of thinking about it. And one is just that um, because all of these are actively managed, the code could change. So there's an absolute limit in Bitcoin that there'll never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. And the only way you could ever conceivably change that would be to get everyone in the network to download software that changed that limit. And they wouldn't do that because the people using the network, of course, are the Bitcoin holders and nobody uh -huh. wants to make their Bitcoin less valuable. Mm -hmm. But in other coins, there are organizers that are basically able to force software changes on people, which is why I'm no fan of regulation, but the chairman of the SEC, who of course regulates securities, mm -hmm. and the chairman of the CFTC, which regulates uh, 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 commodities, they both agree that Bitcoin is a commodity. Now, the chairman of the Commodities Commission has basically said no other crypto is a commodity. Uh, the chairman of the SEC has been a little more hedgy. He says very few might be. But anyway, um, from a regulatory point of view, they treat Bitcoin as if it cannot be changed. It is a commodity, like gold. But all the others are a security, meaning there's a, essentially a board of directors that could make a change. Well, we're out of town, time. So um, thank you, John Cal, for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And hopefully we learned a whole bunch about Bitcoin.